mine for next week? Or is it Mickey's yeah. for next week? I no, it's remember. you first. Okay. Have you genuinely forgotten? I thought that was a bit of stagecraft. No, 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 because I didn't know whose we were using first. <laughs> we're recording like, wowzers, look at Jen pretending we're not just going to have a piss and roll right through. Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and my advice to you, to everyone really, is don't get married and buy a house within a two-week period. It's a sitcom waiting to happen. It yeah. is a lot. Yeah, we didn't plan it this way, but you know, thank our lucky stars. There's all the paperwork to do in a fortnight. Plans be damned. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm just looking at my thing that I've written here and I've got a way better fact than that. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'm going out this evening, Ooh, right? That's one exciting thing. World. Number two, number two, to a theatre. To a theatre. Number three, to see the boss. Incredible scenes. Wow. To be clear, I mean our boss. Not Bruce. The boss. <laughs> not, not Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I'd probably have fainted if that was the case, but yeah. Bruce Springsteen is playing the junction in Cambridge. <laughs> it's so nice that he started Standard Issue as his feminist outlet. <laughs> what a <Yeah>. guy. <laughs> it's just occurred to me the amount of times we say that. I wonder if anyone out there just thinks every time we reference the boss that that's what we're talking about. Well, given that a lot of people have written in to tell me that when I say Q Sting, it's actually Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we know. It's yeah, called yeah, a Sting, though. So possibly people think that we're run by Bruce Springsteen. I'm Jen Offord, and I've never had this many colds in such a short space of time in my life. You start going on the underground again? I didn't stop going on the underground. I, I need it. Have you started touching things on the underground? Touching again? things on the underground. I think I'm still practicing safe um, tube touching. You know, anti back in the old <laughs> that, that hands. That didn't make it sound any better to me. It wasn't meant to. It wasn't meant to. It was meant to make it sound worse. Later on, the very excellent Natalie Haynes busts some myths about the women in Greek myths, and it is fascinating. I chat to author and mental health advocate Claire Easton about her new book, Fuck, I Think I'm Dying and Living with Panic Attacks. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about the Champions League final. And in Rated or Dated, we're watching 1996's Secrets and Lies. Ain't we, sweetheart? Don't break my heart, darling. (laughs) Sweetheart. Sweetheart. But first, an exciting experiment, a Matlock car park, and calling all women. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Round one. Name that inquiry. Oh, there's so <laughs> many to choose from. So many. What's your favourite one? Oh, God. I, I don't think I could pick. I like the wallpaper one. Yeah, the cushions, I was going to say. Yeah. 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 Not the Jennifer Arcuri one. I have to think about Boris having sex. That's too <gasps> much for me. Um. Oh, God. Oh, God, Hannah, what have you done? Um, <laughs> while we're on the subject... Quite a lot has been made of the lefty, in inverted commas, credentials of the current government in the last year. And clearly I'm not talking about, I don't know, attempts to ban protests by the back door for just one of many instances. But, and stay with me, I know it sounds mad, it was, size unprecedented for a government to step in and pay the wages of such a massive section of the labour force as Covid ravaged the jobs market. 
But one thing the government didn't try, which was much spoken of at the time, was a universal basic income scheme. And for those who don't know, a UBI does exactly what it says on the tin and would see everyone, regardless of their income, receive a regular sum of money from the state. The idea being that this regular sum is enough to cover your basic costs of living. OK, OK. What about rich people? Why are you giving people money who don't need it? I hear you ask. And it's a fair question. But the answer, quite simply, is that in a progressive system, most of that money would be paid back in taxes. And so the net cost to the economy is zero. Plus, it's well documented that putting money into the economy is, well, it's good for it. Sort of the opposite of distributing all of the wealth to a really small number of people who just sit on it forever. Mm -hmm. And of course, poverty is not, nor has it ever been, good for the economy. What if we just try it one more time, Jen? Come on, just one yeah. more time. Come on, Jen. <laughs> have you considered how austerity improves stuff? Have you? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> versions of the scheme have been trialled in places like Finland and Kenya, where the jury is still out on the full benefits. But it's got to be worth a try, right? Yeah. Damn straight it is, says Wales First Minister Mark Drakeford, who has announced that Wales will become another country to trial a UBI scheme. He said that since Wales does not have the powers to administer such a scheme without the support of the UK government, it would have to be a pilot and that it would have to be carefully designed, adding that he wanted to see whether the promises that basic income holds are genuinely delivered. It's a bold move and I think it's a great move. So well done, Wales. Indeed. It's interesting. It is interesting. And we're starting with, you know, potentially good news. Allow me to change that. (laughs) It is, as ever, Monday as we record, and last night Israel launched another wave of overnight airstrikes on Gaza after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu signalled the bombardment would continue at, quote, full force. This followed Palestinian militants, including Hamas, firing barrages of rockets at southern Israeli cities. And all of this continues the clusterfuck of violence and horror that's been happening in Gaza and Israel for more than a week now, and obviously is part of a conflict that stretches back decades. The current crisis between Israelis and Palestinians, like so many before, has complex roots in the foundation of Israel in 1948 and after the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel captured then-Arab-controlled parts of Jerusalem, including the Old City and its holy sites. So a key source of tension has been Jewish settlement in the east of Jerusalem, While Israel claims all of Jerusalem as its, quote, undivided capital, this is not recognised by a majority of the international community. In fact, the US is one of only a handful of countries to recognise Israel's claim to the whole of the city, and it is flat out rejected by Palestinians who claim East Jerusalem as the capital of a future Palestinian state. For the Israeli citizens of Palestinian origin, sometimes known by the shorthand of Israeli Arab, which I'm going to use now, the grievances are long-lived, going back to the foundation of the state and including huge problems with political representation, poverty, high levels of crime and generally being treated as second-class citizens. On the Israeli side, a gradual normalisation of far-right politics has created the space for viciously anti-Arab groups to assert themselves on the streets. And there's been a key difference to what's gone before in the last week too, and that is the scenes of communal violence between Israelis and Israeli Arabs. Both Jews and Israeli Arabs, as well as their businesses, homes and places of worship, have been targeted by mob violence. 
And what this means for Israel's very fragile social compact is incredibly worrying, terrifying. As of Sunday the 16th of May, 10 people have been killed in rocket attacks on Israel. In Gaza, the overall death toll stands at 188 people. This is not, by any standards, an equal fight. And Israel has violated and continues to violate international law and the human rights of the Palestinian people time and time again. Peace talks have been taking place on and off for more than 25 years, but so far haven't solved the conflict. I mean, clearly. It is damning of all of us that, if history is anything to go by, the best we can hope for right now is a return to the grim status quo. Yeah, tis shit. We did the Arab-Israeli conflict when I was at school because we weren't... I had an Irish surname, kids with an Irish surname, we weren't allowed to do the troubles. And our final essay on it, this is for my fucking GCSE, was um, to, to write an essay about how we would solve it. And I always remember thinking, yeah, some some 15-year-old kid in Bedford is going to come up with the answer <laughs> to this, aren't they? Aren't they? I'm just hopeful that they're reading your essay right now, Hannah, which means they're on it. I might sort it out, send it to someone, send it to Netanyahu. Have you considered this? I, I don't think he's your best point of contact, to be honest. No, maybe yeah. not. No, no. It would have been Jimmy Carter, but he's a very old man now. Okay. Loath though I am to devote my time and energy to one opinion piece, let's talk about that column in The Times by former Tory MP and writer Matthew Paris. The one that carried the headline, It's Time We Stopped Pandering to Travellers. Now, I'm well aware that he didn't write the headline, but let's stop there for a second and reimagine that headline with the word Jews or women rather than travellers. It's really ugly, isn't it? And then remember that this column isn't about specific demands from travellers, but merely their lifestyle. And then it starts to look really fucking ugly. So what's prompted this realisation from Paris, this line in the sand? Well, it's this, quote, A group of travellers has taken over much of the central car park in my nearest town, Matlock. Holy shit, Matthew. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> This horrifying event has inspired Paris to go off and read the House of Commons Library's 2019 report on gypsies and travellers, something he advises we do too. I've got to say here, I haven't done that. I did spend quite a lot of time looking into the effects of lockdown and Covid on travellers, as well as the vaccine take-up, and discovered that we just don't know how much any of this has affected travelling communities, be they settled in houses, on permanent sites, on boats, or peripatetic. But... And this is according to a report in The Conversation. A review across five regions in England and Wales noted that 66% of gypsy Roma travellers had bad, very bad or poor health. Poor air quality, proximity to industrial sites, asthma and repeated chest infections in children and older people were noted in around half of all the interviews undertaken by the review. Health access is incredibly difficult for people in these communities too, which means that such problems are often not picked up until much later in the illness's trajectory, leading to poorly managed chronic conditions. I mean, thank God we've not got a pandemic of a severe respiratory illness right now. Yeah. Back to Paris, who's quoting bits from the report left, right and centre, including the words, and these are in quotes, women's equality issues with nary a mention of what these might include. Spoiler alert, it's likely a higher than average rate of death of both babies and their mothers in childbirth. Or that in 2019, Janie Cadona, 
of One Voice for Travellers, a domestic abuse charity, estimated such abuse was experienced by as many as 75% of Gypsy, Roma and Traveller women at some point in their lives. Still, they're parked in a car park near Matthew Paris's house. The bitches. <laughs> Paris did find one on-the-ground person to speak to, though. His nephew, who lives in a barge. Something I'm guessing is a choice, even if it may have been forced by the inability to afford to live elsewhere. I'm also guessing he's been to university, and if he moves back to dry land, he's not going to be burdened with the idea that he's breaking generations of tradition by doing so. Paris, who grew up in South Africa, Cyprus, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, Swaziland, which is now Eswatini and Jamaica, and owns houses in Catalonia, London and Derbyshire, concludes that the nomad life is over and that travellers should be rounded up and put on a reservation, sorry, in council properties. Which is everything I've come to expect from a man who once wrote a column saying he became a Tory after reading Animal Farm and being impressed by the pig's intelligence and sense of order. Oh dear. I'd just like to make a point about barges if I can. Uh, my friend used to live on a barge and if, if he's talking about a barge in London I can tell you that the cost of living on a barge in London is about the same as a two to three bed house in most other parts of the country. So um, so yeah, if he lives on a barge he's he's probably still doing alright. Yeah. Yeah. Would anyone like some good news? Oh yes please Jen. Okay, well, a tip of the hat to Standard Issue alumnus and lovely human screenwriter Bisha K. Ali, who has launched a programme with Netflix and Sky to help make the TV industry more inclusive. You can ask pretty much anyone who works in TV how far behind it is in terms of diversity, but you don't just have to take their word for it. As media regulator Ofcom also highlighted how slow progress is in its most recent report on diversity and equal opportunities in the industry. The Screenwriters Fellowship will give six people from underrepresented communities a year's salary in order to mitigate the prohibitive financial hit faced by many when they're trying to get a foot in the door. And the intention is to diversify voices in TV, and I think that's something we can all get on board with. Hurrah and well done, Bisha. Absolutely. Well yeah. done, Bisha. Is there an indication of what those communities are? I think predominantly, maybe only, but the focus is definitely on black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. Great. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we pinpoint something major that's been negatively impacting women for centuries. Oh, hello, medicine. I am indeed looking at you. Now, regular listeners and women who have had to go to the doctor at some point will be no stranger to the fact that centuries of female exclusion has meant women's diseases are often missed, misdiagnosed or remain a total mystery and a lack of sex disaggregated data in research and female participants in clinical trials has done nothing to even the playing field. Well brace yourselves because help comes from unusual quarters. Step forward, the current government. I know, I don't usually deal in surprises in this section but blow me down with a feather, we got one! The government has launched a women's health strategy consultation Pat Mancock even actually refers to male as defaults in the intro, stopped clock and all that. And so this week, I'm actually highlighting a chance to fight sexism of the week. To quote Mancock, tell my mother I love her. For generations, (laughs) women have lived with a health and care system that is mostly designed by men for men. He goes on to say, 
We know that not all women have the same experiences, so we want to hear from as many women as possible from all ages and backgrounds about what you think works well and what we need to change. I'd urge you to come forward and have your say so we can make sure our nation's health system truly works for the whole nation. And, well, I wholeheartedly agree. I cannot stress enough how important it is that as many women as possible respond to this survey. Now, the actual URL is way too much of a complicated mouthful, but if you Google Women's Health Strategy Consultation UK Gov, it's very easy to find. And the consultation is open until 11.45pm on June the 13th. And now to quote Caroline criado Perez, oh, that's better, who recommends, I would also strongly suggest you save your submission, and if you feel able to share it publicly as well, do so. It would be great to have our own mega resource to keep the government on its toes on this one. Absolutely. I don't know how to feel. <laughs> Weird, isn't it? I might need a cautious hug. I have submitted my response already. Well done, Jen. Now then, clearly we give you loads of stuff for your ears. And if you haven't already, you really should, one, hit subscribe so fresh aural delights are waiting for you. And two, have a fertile through our back catalogue of more than 500 podcasts. But what about your eyes? Well, dear listener, you too can be a dear reader simply by signing up for our weekly newsletter, The Bush Telegram. And yes, it is a clever play on The Bush Telegraph. Thanks for noticing. Me, Hannah and Jen take it in turns to chart bits of news that didn't make it into the pod, articles you might fancy checking out, daft YouTube videos our chats have reminded us of, and, in my case, links to cats that ski. That's right, skiing cats. Who doesn't want that in their life? It is well easy to sign up. Just visit our website, standardissuepodcast.com, scroll down to the bottom and pop your email address in the box. Then just wait for some class reading material to hit your inbox each Wednesday. Bingo bongo. I am joined by Claire Easton, author, mental health advocate and blogger. Hello, Claire. Hello. You are here today to talk to us about your new book, Fuck, I Think I'm Dying, How I Learned to Live with Panic. And I just want to say, first of all, that that is a fantastic name for a book about anxiety and panic attacks. It's fairly evident from the title what this book is about, but can you tell us a little bit about it, what it covers and and how you got here from your first book, We're All Mad Here? Sure. For starters, I'm glad you like the title because my grandma does not share the same opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a sticker over it. Panic for so long now has been kind of lumped in with anxiety, which is fair to an extent. You know, one can be a symptom of the other, but panic attacks are a tradition almost in their own right or an emotional experience in their own right. So and I've been having them since 2012 when I had my first nervous breakdown when I was in recovery for that. There was so much information on anxiety, but not panic attacks. And I just couldn't understand how something that was so violent, because they are violent and overwhelming, could almost be disregarded in, in the medical sense. But also, I just didn't, I didn't want my story to be almost from a victim perspective. So I wrote, uh, fuck, I think I'm dying. Because it's about how I learned to live with it, you know, through a variety of complete fuck-ups, if I'm honest, because that's how I've learned, like, the majority of life's lessons. And some of the incidences, incidents are humorous, or it's just, it's a, a lot of stuff that I've learned along the way, and I think that's very true of all of us when it comes to life. We learn things as we go. 
So you live with social anxiety and panic attacks, which I had also kind of lumped into the same category, to be honest. And these panic attacks are, they're sort of normal for you, right? And you say in your introduction, you say that you have had to date, and this is at the time of writing, um, 371 panic attacks. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about when they started. Uh, it was December 2012. I've been living with undiagnosed social anxiety for about 10 years by this point. I didn't know what it was. I just thought I was uh, a bit weird, to be blunt. I thought there's just something wrong with me and I don't really want to acknowledge that. So I'll just crack on, push on. And I went for an interview uh, for a promotion at the publisher I was working for at the time. And I knew going into that meeting that something was wrong. It almost felt like that moment in a dream when you trip. It just felt off kilter, but I just decided that it's only 30 minutes, 45 minutes tops. Just just get through this and you can go home. And when I sat down, I experienced, it was sort of like a warm, not unpleasant feeling circulating through my body, which I now know was adrenaline. And as soon as it kind of reached my heart, it exploded like he was pounding, like punching against my ribcage. I was sweating. I couldn't see. I felt dizzy. My limbs were heavy. And the most terrifying symptom was that I couldn't breathe. And if you've never really experienced that, it's, it's easy to say sort of, oh, I just couldn't catch my breath. No, 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 no. It's like being underwater and knowing that you're not going to get a breath. No matter what you do, you don't get the satisfaction. So it didn't matter that I'd done all this preparation for this interview. And though it was a huge moment in my life, I just stood up. Instead, <laughs> now like you can tell by my accent, I'm from the north. So to this day, I have no idea why I said this, but I announced in like a really posh voice that I had I had the neurovirus and I must leave at once, and legged it out the room. Just legged it, and then I, I legged it out of the office. I legged it out of the building, and I legged it all the way down the street. The description in your book of the way you experience panic attacks is quite an intense description. And there aren't really set symptoms, are there, for panic attacks? So I wondered, do people always know that they're actually experiencing a panic attack? I mean, if anything, I'd say they don't know. Maybe potentially younger generations might do, depending on, like, mental health education they've received. No, I mean, there's a reason why people think they're either having a heart attack or a stroke. Because if you think, you know, my heart's pounding like this, if I feel this off kilter, then it must be physical condition. Because they are surprisingly common aren't they when we were talking about this interview mickey pointed out that all three of us who work on the podcast you know we're all very different people we all have very different things going on in our lives we have all experienced panic attacks individually and i wondered why they happen what is it the sort of physiological response to very glad you asked that anything that's sciencey based i love the amygdala in the brain if you know about panic you'll probably understand this it's an almond shaped organ in the brain that's designed to identify and react to danger as quickly as possible. It's why humans are the top of the food chain, because we can spot danger, we can spot threat and react really quickly. The best example I can give is when you almost trip and fall down the stairs. You know, that horrendous, like, <gasps> and before you even know what's happened, you grabbed the banister, you grabbed something to steady yourself, and you didn't think about doing that. It just happened. You did it. Because that's, you know, the brain's you were hardwired to survive. And you won't have noticed at the time, but your heart would have been pounding. You, know, you would have been covered in sweat. You would have been like, oh my God. But because there was a reason, you don't question it. It gets it dis disregarded. Panic happens 
when we've been in situations of stress for so long and things that distress us for such a long period, such as, you know, heavy workloads, family pressures or whatnot, that the amygdala almost gets tricked into thinking you're in physical danger when you're not. I think one of my favourite quotes is the world changed faster than the brain could evolve. You know, it used to be we're threatened by predators and now we're threatened by deadlines. And the amygdala is reacting in the same way to both responses. So what you're saying is it's basically kind of like the same physiological response to stress, but we're stressed by different things now. So previously we would have been stressed about, oh, I don't know, a, a saber-toothed tiger coming after us I or love something. that. I just wait for you to say it. That's the example, right? Oh, is it's it? Okay. <laughs> Whereas now the threat is like, I don't know, like your notification light flicking on your phone or something like that. I've never thought of it like that. It's true, isn't it? It's like an email in the inbox. Okay, so given that they are so common in people, why are they not talked about very much? That is a very good question. I think it comes down to, well, first of all, it's a lack of education. We don't know. Like, there's not enough information out there. The second is shame and embarrassment. You know, when you have a headache, you literally just say, like, oh, I've got a headache, I don't feel well. Panic attack. Or some people worry that it makes them seem weak or not able to cope their job or life in general so we keep that to ourselves which is really sad to me and I did it. So what made you able to then come out and tell your story? Well Christ after you were uh, ball out of a, a meeting sounded like a coked up Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean when I first got diagnosed with a doctor I, I did a lot of research and there was so much that was littered with medical jargon that I didn't understand and there was so much that was really overwhelming so I thought if nothing else I'm going to start blogging about this and like write it in a way that someone like me would understand and I told my story because I think if I didn't I'd die I had to get this out of me and almost treat it like a research project grow we'll learn as we go kind of thing because you can't at this point you can't get any worse. I had one panic attack once as far like I think it was a panic attack anyway I don't obviously know for a fact but it was weirdly I was buying my first place I was told that my mortgage had been approved and even though this was like a good thing I had what I can only describe as a panic attack and it's quite a discombobulating experience isn't it It's, it's an unpleasant experience and what I found afterwards was that I kind of got the fear of the fear So it sort of almost became like a sort of self-perpetuating thing where the anxiety about feeling anxious made me more anxious, if that that makes sense. I wondered, is that a fairly common experience? So common, and that makes total sense. Fear is intolerable to humans. We don't like it. And we're not really taught how to deal with it in the same way we are with positive emotions, so... You know, we want to get rid of it as fast as we can. It's the reason why we tell children if they're worried at night, like, oh, no, don't worry about murderers or whatnot. We don't like it. Get rid of the fear. So when you have a horrendous experience that made you feel unsafe and distressed, it's, it's trauma. I really liken it to a certain extent to trauma. and We don't want that to reoccur. And eventually, like you say, you're not actually, it's not the attack itself you're afraid of anymore. It's the idea of it. So how do we overcome that? Is that a bad thing that we sort of push fear away? Yeah, I think it's rather than thinking, or oh, I'm afraid, because that's what it is. Ultimately, anything with any kind of what if, what if thought is I'm afraid. Rather than thinking that, you kind of have to answer it and 
if this happens, then we'll experience it. We'll experience it and it will end like everything ends. We practice with it. We sit with it. We get comfortable with it. We don't welcome it to an extent, but anything that you don't understand is uh, much scarier, I think. So, I mean, I've done so much reading on panic and when something happens rather than trying to fight it off or reject it, I kind of try and sit with it and see how it makes me feel and accept it to an extent. Given that there aren't sort of universal symptoms, I'm guessing that diagnosis is potentially a bit tricky. And you were told by a doctor to just just calm down and that would would make it all go away, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of conversely, women's physical pain is quite often dismissed as anxiety and, and you know, mental health issues and, and things like that, which is a bit of a weird paradox, really. I think anxiety is more associated with women and depression more with men. I think it could be tricky to get a diagnosis in the sense of, is it anxiety or is it panic? And it's more like once you get the diagnosis, what do you do? Like, how, what, what do we do now? Like, what treatment can we get? I think that's when the real problems be- you know, kind of come in because it's not a case of take this and it'll go away. It's a case of there's a try this and it might make it better, it might make it worse. You can go on the list for therapy. That experiencing you're referencing was in A&E and in A&E uh, I'm very wary to criticise any NHS workers because A&E is what it sounds like. It's accident and emergency so a mental health condition might not be prioritised, which I'm not saying is fair, but it might not be prioritised over somebody with a physical wound and I think it was a lack of education on that particular doctor's part which was tragic and it could have had devastating outcomes for me but fortunately I know a lot about the condition anyway so I don't know if it's hard to get a diagnosis I think it's more difficult to find the right treatment. I guess for a start one of the points that you make is that you were very aware in that situation that of what was normal for you and that wasn't normal for you so is that something that you would say to people listen to your instinct a bit really if you think that something is not right then it it probably isn't. 100% you know if I can communicate anything it's that like you know you better than anyone because we spend so much of our time trying to uh, silence ourselves try and listen you know, in the same way that it's going to give you signals when you need a week or if you're hungry, you'll get mental symptoms too, like physical or emotional. If you uh, start experiencing tremors or disturbed sleep or a dry mouth or you feel run down and tired all the time or irritable, that's one that's really important if you feel irritable and some people are knowing you more than they used to. It could be signals from your brain trying to tell you that something's not quite right and need to take a minute and as you say there's no cure and so in the book you're trying to help people a little bit who might be suffering from panic attacks and and giving them a bit of advice on on what you can do to sort of manage your own situation i wonder did you have any advice that you could you could give any listeners who might be experiencing panic attacks absolutely the, the most important thing is to and this is the hardest thing chapter eight my book is self-compassion and self-kindness what's happening is natural like it's so important to recognize that if your brain is working you know it's fully functional it's shit hot to keep you alive so there's no problem there you're not a freak you're not pathetic it's just there's been a bit of a miscommunication along the way and we need to put things in place to kind of take that bit first of all i would say educate yourself as much as you can knowledge really is power when it comes to panic because so much of it can seem chaotic 
Like, for example, I think the symptom that scared me the most was numb and heavy limbs, which I thought was a sure sign I was having a stroke. But it's actually really sophisticated. Your veins retreat deeper and deeper into muscle tissue when it feels under threat in case you get struck so you won't bleed to death, which is amazing. But because it felt strange to me, I was terrified. But knowing that now makes me feel like, oh, my God, my body's amazing. Even my veins know what to do. I don't have to tell them. So the stuff of that education is really important. Obviously, talk to your doctor about it and see what treatment options are available. Well, personally, I think it's education. And the second thing is, oh my God, just be kind and be patient with yourself and understand that if it was a a physical condition, you know, like a cold or a stomach bug, you wouldn't be ashamed. So you should give the brain the same respect. So, Claire... Fuck I Think I'm Dying was published on May the 6th by Squarepeg and is available from all good bookshops because now you can actually go into them and indeed online if you just really want another delivery of something. Which you might, who knows. Where can we follow you on the socials, as it were, if we if we want to find out more about what you're up to? On Instagram, you can find me on at Claire East Ham UK. On Twitter, it's the unfortunate at Clary Love. I had that when I was 22 and I regret it. <laughs> and my blog is we're all mad here excellent okay claire thank you so much for chatting to me pleasure hello i am joined on the zoom by writer broadcaster classicist comedian and keen knitter natalie haynes <laughs> natalie hello I to hear that getting a moment <laughs> I didn't know I was going to have to show you my knitting. Uh, brackets, not a Close brackets. <laughs> it works brilliantly on a podcast if you can just hold up things you've yeah, knitted. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, everyone loves that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to start big. Natalie, what have the classics ever done for us? Everything, mate. They've done everything. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because classics is a much more freighted term than it used to be. What it used to mean was just essentially Greek and Roman culture from which undeniably countries like everywhere in Europe, North America, and because of the way, you know, empire building and colonialism went uh, then much further afield into what we might once have called the new world. These countries all owed something of their legal systems and their culture and their politics and so on and so on and so on to societies that existed thousands of years ago in Southern Europe. And of course, what's happened over time is that we've realised, at least uh, the majority of us have realised, that there is more to ancient history than just those societies, however much material we have from those societies. And bear in mind, we we don't have very much. You know, we, we've lost mm. between 97 and 99% of ancient Greek and Latin literature, which is pretty devastating when you think of it in those terms. And yet we still have vastly more than we have about, say, ancient Mesopotamia or you know the Phoenicians <laughs> or, and so it feels like a real moment in classics where we kind of need to reconsider what we mean when we say the words but the short answer is I suppose that we stand on the shoulders of the past you know necessarily and sometimes it's with things that are really obvious like today we can develop vaccines because you know a couple of hundred years ago people were developing vaccines and so on and so on but sometimes it's much more I don't know, nebulous, ethereal than that. You know, sometimes they are values or sometimes they are a cultural notion, an idea or something like that. And some of those ideas are terrible. You know, that the ideas of people <laughs> yes. in the past aren't good. 
I'm very much not a declinist, this notion that there was a sort of perfect, beautiful past and that we're in a constant slide down to nothingness from there is absolutely not what I would advocate. I guess what I would say is that I think we stand a much better chance of understanding ourselves and the world that we live in if we try to understand worlds that are worlds apart. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was really excited to chat to you about women in the classics because as with women in most things in history, they, they don't necessarily get the headline status that the fellas do, that the heroes do. Yeah, they do on my watch, eh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Specifically the Greek myths, until I then realised I would be murdering various names with my flat northern pronunciation. That's all right, I'm here for you. <laughs> Thank you. I spend more time than you would believe having people go, I'm really sorry, I'm probably saying this wrong. It's like, I'm saying them wrong. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry. When I go to Greece or um, to Cyprus, somewhere where people speak Greek, I can only just about understand that even when they're saying names from ancient Greek, because I've pronounced them in like English ancient Greek <laughs> and they're pronouncing them in Greek ancient Greek. And it is different. So yeah, I say Oedipus. In America, they say Oedipus and we're both wrong because in Greek it's Oedipus. So it really doesn't matter how you pronounce it. You're not in trouble. Oh, I feel better now. When I was reading Pandora's Jar, which is your most recent book, all of the names and stories were really familiar to me. Medea, Medusa, Eurydice, Helen, nailed that one. But, and apologies if this makes me sound a bit thick, why do these myths exist and how do they work? Are they religion or Shakespeare or parables? I mean, I think that we look at myths often through the prism of Shakespeare because obviously he's borrowed from them extensively he borrows from roman history things like julius caesar but he does borrow from greek myth that's why it's theseus and hippolyta who are you know getting married in midsummer night's dream so the thing that you have to remember i think when you look at greek myth is that you're basically looking at it however you look at it whether you're looking at it through shakespeare or in greek or in translation of the greek you're looking at constantly shifting quantities of of transparent but tinted um, filters. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So when we look at a story like Helen, who we think of almost always as Helen of Troy, but of course she starts out as, as Helen of Sparta, otherwise it'd be a very short war. <laughs> and so we're looking at her story as it's told where? By Homer? Yeah, okay. Well, Homer is the earliest source, or Hesiod, depending on who you think comes first, but Homer probably. And we don't know how many poets Homer is or was, and we don't know, you know exactly how much of it was composed by lots of, of bards, rhapsodes, oral composition across the Greek world. And then eventually it's written down in a sort of codified version um, and then it's edited and so on and so on. When does that exactly happen? We don't really know. How many people are involved? We don't really know. But what we definitely know is that even that is, is a good 500 years or so after the time in which Helen was believed to have lived. In the ancient world, the distinction between myth and history, it doesn't really exist. Myth is just history that happened longer ago. Okay. So when we come to a version of a story that we might know better from a Greek tragedy, for example, the story of Oedipus and Jocasta, we're getting a story which is maybe first heralded. In this instance, it's Oedipus and Epicast, is what Homer calls her in the Odyssey. But then we get that refracted through this filter of Sophocles, the great 5th century playwright so he's got the story from where from homer from earlier than homer from later than homer and then we have his version but we might read that in translation or see it performed on stage in english or in french or whatever in which case there's another filter with another slight tint 
And then you might come to it by reading me writing about it. And I'm giving you my 21st century feminist perspective on a story that, you know, can stand that. Don't get me wrong. It's stood up to quite a lot of things that it can definitely cope with me. But it means that every time we look at these myths, we're looking at something that has been interpreted and reinterpreted for so long that it's impossible to say what the original version is. There isn't an original version. There are just, you know, the story of Helen was incredibly popular because, you know, it's the story of the most beautiful woman in the world. So is it a religion? In a way, she becomes a cult. Yeah. Um, And yes, I said cult. Um, And so like Heracles, Hercules, for, for the men, not that I ever write about them, but, you know, occasionally I accidentally write about one. Then you get this um, sense of them become, going from being sort of human or partly human, they're both um, offspring of Zeus, to becoming deities. And so you get this sense of, of a religion, or at least, at the very least, a cult religion forming. And even that is quite a, is, you know, cult religion implies, I mean, for the Romans, Christianity is a cult religion, right? So right. <laughs> it's like, well, even that makes it sound like I'm diminishing it. Why, why is it less of a religion to worship Helen than it is to worship you know, uh, what we would now consider to be a world religion. To me, I guess it isn't because I'm not a religious person. I'm only ever looking at religions as an outsider, I suppose. So yes, in a way, a religion and storytelling is, it's something that I think human beings have always done. It's really impossible to imagine a culture where telling stories doesn't ever happen. The idea of not telling a story to a child, it's it's quite difficult. Um, If you spend any time with a child, then telling the same story over and over and over again (laughs) is really required. So it's difficult to imagine that people ever grew up in a a different way, I think. And I guess these myths have come about because people are trying to explain the world in the same way that you've talked about Christianity. Trying to explain the world and maybe set some moral standards. But as you touched on earlier, and I'd say this about all religions, I mean, they're off the mark quite a lot of the time. It is difficult, isn't it? Because Euripides, the the 5th century Athenian playwright, was in his own lifetime was uh, prosecuted for being blasphemous because of the way he depicted the gods, which was insufficiently reverent. His gods are incredibly petulant. They're like toddlers, that they're basically just pure id mixed with having superpowers. They can be very difficult to like. And yeah, people were shocked by that presentation of them. But Sophocles, who's seen as a much more kind of, you know, grown up, respectable tragedian, there's a moment in Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, as we would call it, um, where Jocasta says, to Oedipus, who who is concerned that that Tiresias, the blind prophet, knows things about him that he doesn't want to be true, and she says, "Oh, you don't need to listen to what you know prophets and oracles say; they're all nonsense." And it's like, did you just? Is this two and a half thousand years old kind of a bit of atheism being thrown in? And you know, that's an anachronistic dis- describing um, of it because. I think for Sophocles, probably to suggest that he didn't think the gods exist, it would be like not believing that trees exist. I don't think there's any sense of that. But there's definitely a sense that the gods just can't be concerned with with human matters. And that's, you know, so they're so separate from us, they're almost irrelevant to us. And that's right there in this, you know, much more God-fearing play than, than Euripides. So, you know, I'm really interested in the way that these myths shift through ancient time and then you know what what tends to happen is that we kind of pick a version or our more recent ancestors pick a version and then that's the only one that survives so at least as old as the story of Helen going to Troy 
is the story where Helen does not, in fact, go to Troy, but goes to Egypt and lives out a completely blameless 10 years in Egypt, not having an affair with Paris, not having an affair with anybody. Um, and the gods instead send a, an image of her, an Erdalon is the word in Greek, something which looks and sounds exactly like her. And the whole war of Troy is fought over this image of Helen. At the end of the war, the Greeks finally get their hands on her and she disappears into the air that she was made of. It's like, well, that's about the best metaphor for the futility of war you're ever going to come up against. <laughs> but that version of the story is just lost. When is she ever called Helen of Egypt? You very occasionally see the Euripides play Helen performed. It was done at the Globe a few years ago in London, which is set in Egypt. It begins on the Nile. But, but it's pretty rare. And certainly we don't ever think of her, I think, as Helen of Sparta, her hometown, let alone Helen of Egypt. We always think of her as this, you know, the face that launched a thousand ships, as Marlowe has it. It's maybe a myth itself that you have busted for me very recently, that the Greek myths weren't great on female perspective. But to quote you, back to you, the female characters <laughs> in Greek myth have been marginalised by writers in the brackets, relatively close brackets, modern world. And while I think it's fair to say that all the characters in Greek myth are open to various interpretations, but the women are more sketchy, more nebulous, more shadowy. Interpretations yes, are thrust upon them. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Penelope is probably the case in point. When we meet her at the beginning of the Odyssey, she's veiled, her face is veiled. And it's like, well, you know, why, why is that? And the answer is we're going to spend 24 books not really ever knowing what she thinks. And so she looks like what she is, an enigma. We are supposed to see her and go, what's behind that veil? Because 24 books later, we're still going to be wondering. Penelope is a really interesting one because she is not a bad woman. And this book is full of bad women, you know, bad wives, bad mothers, uh, even worse wives, even oh, worse stepmothers. Oh, um, um, some of them are armed with axes, some of them have swords. But Penelope is an archetypally good wife. And it, it's just always really irritated me. It's like, well, who gets to decide? And the answer, of course, is men who don't really know her. And so, you know, when Agamemnon from the underworld in book 24 of the Odyssey says, you know, oh, the son of Laertes, he means uh, Penelope's husband, Odysseus, you're so lucky because, you know, your wife waited so loyally for you not like my wife. I mean, obviously he's speaking for the underworld because his wife and her boyfriend have killed him. So you can see why he's a little grumpy. He's a dick though. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I have got the absolute shortest shrift for him. I, even by my standards, where my fuse isn't famously long. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's like a nano wick when it comes to <laughs> Agamemnon. It's like, seriously. Right, killing him in a thousand ships was honestly one of the happiest days I've ever spent at my desk. <laughs> I could have gone back and done it again. I would, no problem at all. But that's the case in point, right? Because he's admiring of Penelope for four seconds until he can turn the subject back to himself. Point the first. Point the second, he admires Penelope because it gives him another you know stick with which to beat his wife your wife was so great mine's terrible mine's terrible it's all about how terrible mine was and it's like well why do you think she is great because you met her when exactly and the answer is you know at the earliest 20 years ago because 20 years ago you went away to the war and then you know you died when you got home from your war um so you've been in the underworld for 10 years so you met her once or maybe twice two decades ago and you feel like you're the authority on who she is well newsflash buddy you're not <laughs> and, and other breaking news nor were you ever so <laughs> this idea that someone can say oh this this woman is perfect and blah 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 and it's like 
but but who is saying that? What does that mean about Penelope? It means she's loyal to Odysseus while he's away for twenty years and brings up his son as a single mother. Well, she's pretty good. I'm not, but you know, make, calling her this perfect wife, idealizing her, it puts her on a pedestal. And you know, I'm never sure that that's going to be that comfy. What if she gets tired and wants to have a sit down? I mean, unattainable standards for women, Natalie. Thankfully, that's uh, all thorn. gone away. <laughs> Thank goodness we all grew out of that. (laughs) So you've written several books about these endlessly fascinating characters, including your most recent Pandora's Jar. And series seven of your excellent Radio 4 show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, started yesterday. What I'm about to ask you is mean, but I'm going to do it anyway. Who's your favourite woman from Greek myth and why? My favourite is Medusa because I'm currently writing a novel about Medusa. I always love the one I'm writing about at any given time. And I was so angry about what happens to Medusa. For listeners, could you just explain what we have not known necessarily about Medusa? So Medusa is the first literally monstered rape victim or rape survivor, if you prefer. She is um, attacked by Poseidon. In some versions of her story, I should say, they have a consensual sexual encounter in a damp meadow. And yes, that's a euphemism in Greek as well as in English. But in the majority of versions of the story, Poseidon in the Greek or in the Latin, uh, the verb is usually to seize, but it means to have sex without concerning yourself with consent. Um, So to rape. Poseidon rapes Medusa in the temple of Athene. And Athene is so angry that this violation of her temple has occurred and feel free at any point to note that we still do this now that the problem with a rape isn't that a woman has been raped or that a man has raped her it's some tangential issue which is somehow affronted by this occurrence as though it you know in the case of Poseidon I suppose I was going to say as though it were the will of God in that instance it is but that should always remind us to be careful with those phrases I suppose and Athene punishes Medusa therefore by turning her into a monster she gives her in Ovid's version in the Metamorphoses um, she gets her snake hair at this moment there is no uh, guarantee that she gets her lithifying gaze her ability to turn things to stone at the same moment that she gets the snake hair it's not mentioned in Ovid for example so it's perfectly possible that she always had the ability to turn things to stone but she didn't have the snaky hair it's a particularly cruel moment because um, we're told at least by Ovid that she's an incredibly beautiful young woman that she has you know dozens of suitors vying for her hand and her hair is her most beautiful feature in in this version of the story Um, Ovid's narrator says oh I heard it from someone who saw her and her hair was especially beautiful so it's a, a real mark of cruelty that it's her hair which is turned into snakes And I have to tell you, writing as I am from just over the halfway point of the Medusa novel, it was really painful to write. All the the sequences have been, um, or a lot of them have been very uh, difficult to write. The fun bits with the gods are always a joy. And yeah, the bits where where Medusa gets literally monstered have been extremely difficult to write. They're all really short and I thought they were going to be big. And other bits of the book have sort of expanded to fill the space because actually it's like, this doesn't need that many words. You know, they, they just feel indulgent. You know, she deserves her story to be told kind of cleanly and plainly, mm-hmm. I've decided that that's what's happening. So yeah, I was so cross writing Medusa's chapter in Pandora's Jar. And at the end of it, I was still really angry. I was at a book festival in the days where we did such things um, <laughs> with my friend Philippa Perry, the psychotherapist, and I was ranting about her, as I am wont to do. And she said, I just don't know what's going to happen when you find out about the next 2,000 years of misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a a very good question. (laughs) So I'm such an unacademic 
writer in that regard, I always fall in love with the person I'm writing about, always, every single time. But I think, yeah, I can see why you're saying it's an academic, but the, the stories are so emotional. They, they are. They're so yeah. emotive. It's like a massive soap opera. It's, it's humankind writ large, which I guess is why we keep coming back to them. There's always something to spot in there that relates to today. Even that feels quite radical, though, I think, because... For a really long time, I think those emotions have been downplayed, not particularly because they're not in the Greek. I mean, in, in ancient Greece, at least in the time of, say, the Bronze Age, say the time of the Trojan War, then enormous, almost to us, theatrical displays of emotion are not uncommon. When someone dies, you literally tear your skin with your nails. You know, you, you rend your garments, you pull out your hair. And yet you'll, you'll often be able to read a, a tragedy or Homer translation and think how very contained it all seems. And it's like, well, that's definitely not coming from the Greeks. That's definitely 18th, 19th, 20th century translators. In a way, they've been sanitized out by sort of stiff upper lip English translations for a couple of hundred years. Uh-huh. But yeah, who would have thought that you know, I would be the person whacking them back in? <laughs> Normally, <laughs> icily unemotional in the face of anything. But man, you put me in front of a computer with a novel to write and I'm such a crier. I can't help it. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I think with the your feminist credentials and with the women being quite often in the shadows, there's so much there to draw out because the information as Pandora's jar demonstrates time and time again is there like the information is yeah, there if you, you look for it you have to hunt but it's there as it as ever it is with women in history i've got one last question for you before i let you go and i think we've probably i'm hoping we've got our listeners on board with the classics but that it does run the risk i think when you mention the classics that one it's ruined by boris johnson and his kind of ilk who you know sometimes spout a bit of latin or ancient greek and and look down on people who might not understand it and two it's not necessarily something that is taught in state schools so it hasn't been accessible is that changing Uh, yes in some ways and not as much as i would like in other ways so here's the thing classics belongs to all of us ancient history belongs to all of us and in some cases it's not even the history is not even that that ancient i made a documentary for radio 4 a few years ago about scottish latinism about which i knew shamefully little before we made the program even as late as i think the 17th century like a quarter of scottish history and and important records official records are being written in latin so you're not just depriving people in scotland of virgil or Ovid, which seems to me a deprivation enough, you're depriving them of their own recent history. Mm-hmm. And that's not okay. None of it is okay. Classics get, gets in the neck on both sides. You know, posh right-wing people want to, you know, have it in private schools as a marker of the elite so that you can go around spouting it and everyone will be impressed with you and make you prime minister. <laughs> and the other way, people I you know, often would be more in agreement with politically, like Andy Burnham, when he was education secretary, was saying, oh, you know, classics is really elitist. We need more people doing, I've forgotten now, computer science or something, and, and fewer people doing Latin. It's like, wait, it's not Latin's fault. <laughs> Latin isn't elitist. If we limit study of Latin to an elite, who's the elite here? Yeah, yeah. And it's not okay. You know, I, I have no problem with somebody not wanting to learn Latin or Greek or music, or art, or drama, or any of those things. If you don't want to, you don't have to, and nor should you. But I do have a problem with people being told that their 
not allowed to, that they're not good enough, that they're not rich enough, that they're not clever enough, because classics doesn't belong to this little clique of people who decided that they were its gatekeepers. When do I get to vote for you, please? (laughs) (laughs) Anytime you like. So Pandora's Jar is published by Picador and out now in paperback. And Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics is back and available on Radio 4 at 11.30am each Tuesday. Or you can and should get stuck into the whole back catalogue on BBC Sounds. Natalie, where can people follow you on like socials and stuff so they can find out what you're up to and when that Medusa novel is going to hit my eyes? Uh, Medusa will be next spring. So I have to deliver it this September, September 21. So it should be out spring 22. You're right, the radio show is all lurking on sounds. The fan page is Natalie Haynes, stand-up classicist on Facebook. I'm official N. Haynes on Twitter. I wish I could tell you what I'm called on Instagram, but the honest truth is I have no idea. I should know. I know I should know, but I don't. I can't be even trusted with the password to it. I appreciate your honesty. We'll take. It's better to just front it out. <laughs> yeah, I totally. Find. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It's absolutely fascinating. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we crumple like a tear-soaked St George's flag as we discuss all things women's sport. And it's tear-soaked because classic English football, it's all hype, hype, hype. Oh, hello darkness, my old friend. So I'll just get this out of the way quickly because it's depressing and also I'm very aware I've chatted about them three weeks in a row now. Chelsea bloody lost, didn't they? I'm not talking about the FA Cup final in which the men's team lost to Leicester City. Nay, in fact, I was delighted about that. But it was presumably a miserable weekend in West London as the women's team also lost the Champions League final to Barcelona on Sunday night. And it was what we call a hard day at the office for the Blues after an own goal in the first minute when the ball rebounded off Melanie Lupoltz for an own goal at the Gamla Ulevi Stadium in Gothenburg. In the 14th minute, they gave away a penalty and Barcelona added two more before the first half was out, leaving Chelsea with an almost impossible task. Or, if you want me to use football cliches, a mountain to climb to turn around their four-goal deficit. Chelsea put in a decent performance in the second half. In fact, they had one more on-target shot on goal than Barcelona in total but Barcelona clearly knew what to do with their four attempts better than their opponents. It's still a huge achievement to make it to the final and there will be no time to mope as Chelsea face Everton in the FA Cup fourth round on Thursday this week which is tomorrow if you're listening on Wednesday. A chance there for them to meet with Charlton Athletic who I'm delighted to say beat Blackburn 1-0 on Sunday to progress to the quarter-finals of the tournament. I'd just like to say before we move on from this quite a lot was made in the press of the fact that Roman Abramovich Chelsea's Russian oligarch owner bothered to turn up for this match. To that I'd like to say what the actual fuck it's not like he couldn't afford the bus fare is it i find this kind of rhetoric utterly ridiculous given that his team had reached the pinnacle of european competition and to be honest wanging on about it as if it's a major thing i actually think is detrimental to the cause given that the implication is then that by default why has he bothered to turn up the bar is just so low for men in basically all walks of life isn't it also while we're on the subject of damaging rhetoric in football alex scott doesn't deserve to be the new host of Football Focus. Rather, she is well qualified, in fact, better qualified than many of her male counterparts to do the job, which has now been officially announced. We knew the announcement was coming, but nonetheless, congratulations, Alex. 
One last football-related agenda item. A quick tip of the hat to England legend-turned-coach Casey Stoney, who has walked away from her job as manager of Manchester United. Her resignation was announced on May the 12th, just ahead of her team's final game of the season against Leicester City last weekend. She was the first boss of the entirely new Manchester United women's team, only announced three years ago, lest we forget. They did a good job in their first season, securing promotion to the top flight, and they finished fourth this season. No one really knows why she's left. She's said to have been unimpressed by the club's involvement in the 24-hour European Super League and frustrated to have been left out of conversations around that. But who knows? We also don't as yet know what's next for her, but could a spell at an American club be on the cards? Watch this space. What else has been going on, I hear you ask? Well, quite a bit as it's an Olympic year, albeit a weird one. The European Aquatic Championships are underway and Team GB, consisting of Lucy Hope, Anna Hopkin, Abby Wood and Freya Anderson have won an historic gold medal in the 4x100m freestyle relay. Amy Wilmot also finished second in the 400m individual medley final. Obviously, there's always quite a lot of competition outside of Europe when we get to the Olympics themselves, but that's certainly something to feel good about as we approach the Games. There's also been some hockey going on, and GB's women have beat Germany 2-0 as the FIH Hockey Pro League got underway. It's a very unfamiliar-looking squad, I have to say, compared to the Olympic squad in 2016. Maddie Hinch is really the only name I recognise, but they've already qualified for the Olympics, so it's good to see them winning after a slightly ropey period a couple of years ago. Coming up this weekend, there's also a season-opening Diamond League meeting, this time at Gateshead. All eyes will, of course, be on Dina Asher-Smith and Laura Muir from a GB perspective, and there will be some fans there, because we can do that now. Woohoo! Of course, if you can't be there, you can watch all that on Sunday on BBC Two, the iPlayer and the BBC Sport website. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film made me remember that there is actually an old toilet in the outhouse in our back garden? There is? Yeah, there's an old toilet. I mean, you can't use it. You could, but I'd be very cross with you. When I was growing up, my nan only had an outside toilet. It was just full of snails. It was awful. If you went, if you didn't want to shit yourself when you went there, you certainly did by the time that you got your trousers down. This week, we watched Secrets and Lies, directed by Mike Lee and released in the UK in May 1996. If Train Spotting was the British film that bought home all the money that year, Secrets and Lies was the one that bought home all the glory. It's award hall, including the Palm Door and the Best Actress Award at Cannes, three BAFTAs and a Golden Globe. And while it didn't win any of the five Oscars it was nominated for, it was the film that made America wake up to the peculiarly British sensibilities of Lee. And four of his subsequent films were also Oscar nominated. And just to round off the plaudits, Secrets and Lies has 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and was listed as the 40th best British film by the BFI. One of the BAFTAs Lee won for Secrets and Lies was for his writing, which is worth mentioning in that it's kind of odd, given his films aren't written as such. I'm doing the bunny ears there, which always works well for a podcast. The characters and storyline are created by workshopping with actors, with improvisations filmed, and then a script drafted by Lee based on those. It sounds like a shit show, but it somehow works, as well as creating a number of fun anecdotes 
like the time Tim Roth and Gary Oldman were titting around between rehearsals for the TV film Meantime and had an accident. And Roth ended up having to drive his co-star to the hospital with a head wound, something Oldman, who was dressed as a skinhead at the time, wasn't half as worried about as the fact they'd need to make it clear to every single person in the hospital that he was actually an actor. What this does mean, though, is that the story you've probably heard about how Brenda Blethyn didn't know Marianne Jean-Baptiste was playing her daughter until just before they filmed that scene in which they first meet is total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Mike Lee did clarify that it wasn't until the actors met in person that they became aware of the roles they'd be playing and he did advise them to use whatever emotions they had at that moment in the scene. And as a director, he certainly puts Blethyn through the ringer in Secrets and Lies, including a single take, single camera, seven minute scene where the pair go for a cup of tea when they first meet. It's astonishing. While Hortense's calm and controlled demeanour means Jean-Baptiste can largely restrain herself to a single tear for most of the film, Cynthia is a wild-haired woman on the edge, a bag of nervous energy, even in her quiet moments. And I think it's interesting that I saw her as an old woman when I first watched this in 1996, and I still see Cynthia that way, despite now being five years older than her. A little summary of the plot for those not in the know... Orphaned after the death of both her adoptive parents, Hortense seeks out her birth mother and finds a desperately lonely Cynthia living in a house full of crap, slowly suffocating her second daughter, Roxanne, played with glorious grumpiness by Claire Rushbrook. Her brother, Lee Stalwart Timothy Spall, is a working-class lad done good and lives nearby in a big house. What's he want with six bedrooms anyway? (laughs) But he's also struggling, not least because none of the women in his life like each other. His wife, Monica, played by Phyllis Logan, suffers with really bad PMT and period pains and has been unable to fall pregnant and is coping with it by not talking about it and stenciling everything that can't physically get up and walk away from her. So, when Morris decides to throw a 21st birthday barbecue for Roxanne, shit inevitably kicks off. Okay, I know you've both seen this before, but just out of interest, when was the last time you saw it? Not for years and years, I don't think. Like, probably, I I remember watching it a lot when I was a teenager. I don't know why, but I don't think I've seen it for a really long time. I don't think I've seen it this century. I would, yeah, I reckon probably. Yeah, it's been a while since I'd seen it. And I have to say, I didn't forget how good it was, but I kind of did because... When I watched it, I was like, oh, man, why haven't I watched this again more recently? This is fucking great. But I don't know if that's the reaction that you had. Oh, no, it's great. It is great. It is great. One thing that I don't remember is two hours and 20 minutes. That's quite long. It's longer than I remember it being. And it's quite slow paced as well, I think. And yet to me, it felt shorter than, say, Thelma and Louise, which is yeah. action packed. Do you know what I mean? That it's yeah. weird, isn't it? I think it's because it gets to the barbecue, which you know is going to be the climax of it, and it's still got half an hour to go. And then once you get to that, that bit quite, feels quite compressed and tight because there's always something happening at it. It's, there's a couple of things that I thought were interesting from a more modern perspective. One was that, I think, looking at Phyllis Logan's character now, 
you'd be like, oh, right, maybe she's got endometriosis. Endometriosis, yeah, yeah. Exa- I totally agree. Which yeah. she would never, I'm, you know, I don't even think I knew what that was when I watched this. Mm. I mean, I was a teenager, but it just wasn't something that people spoke of. Whereas now you're like, oh, right, okay, that's probably what is up with her. The other thing I thought was interesting was not like, um, I don't think people generally kind of go around being like, hey, I can't have kids. But I felt that like possibly the level of shame that she obviously feels. I don't know that it's shame. I think her problem is that she really resents that Cynthia could just appear to have children at the drop of a hat. And she doesn't want Cynthia to know because she doesn't want Cynthia to feel superior hmm. to yeah. her. That's there's, the way I saw it. There's but. definitely something about, like, she's pissed off because, like, why do you get to have kids and, and I can't? There's there's obviously some of that going on, but I felt like I felt like there was a sense of shame for her, perhaps, as well, which I thought was, like, so pronounced, possibly things would be not the same way anymore. I don't know. I mean, maybe still a bit... I don't know. That's just what occurred to me. I agree with you. And I feel like that, that sense of shame, it's, it's, she feels like a failure. Yeah. That's why she gets, mm. as well as like the fact that endo or even PMDD or horrible PMS is so painful and messes with your hormones. She gets so sad and angry. And she says at one point, she goes, it is predictable though, isn't it? Yeah. Like as in she, she always gets a period. So I think there is that sense of I'm a woman. I should be able to have kids and I've not been able to do that. Mm that she's internalised slash used against Morris. It's a really woman-y film. Yeah, it is, yeah. For a film directed by a bloke, it's a really woman-y film. Yeah, I was a bit taken aback by that, actually. It's interesting as well, because being called Secrets and Lies and having it all out, there's still loads of questions that it didn't answer. There's still loads of things that hang there. For example, and I think it's something that a film would probably feel more inclined to question now than then, which was whether or not Hortense was the result of a sexual assault or a rape, which is something that doesn't get answered, but it feels like it possibly was the case. But that might just be my interpretation of it. It was my interpretation of it as well. It definitely occurred to me. I don't I don't think I had decided that that was what happened, but I definitely thought, oh, I wonder if something bad happened. Because like... she says he wasn't a good man, doesn't she? Yeah. Well, she doesn't. What she says is... Don't break my Roxanne, heart. Yeah, heart. Roxanne, your dad was this guy from America who just sort of disappeared on me. And Hortense says, but he was a good man. And mm-hmm. Hortense says, was my dad a good man? And she goes, don't break my heart, darling. <laughs> but she asked her earlier on as well. And she's like, I can't, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you. And I wondered then, like, maybe she doesn't know. That is the other alternative because she's forgotten. She's yeah, definitely forgotten. And whether yeah. that's because she's put it to the back of her mind, which we do do with trauma, you know, forget that. Or whether it is she's just forgotten. Yeah, because he wasn't a significant person or, or, or whatever, you know. Although she would have been 15. She was 15 when she was pregnant. But I think it's interesting in Hannah's bang on that... I think a modern film or making it now, they would feel the need to answer these questions. And actually it's much more interesting because they don't, it doesn't all just get cleared up at a barbecue. And I love that some of the stuff gets aired, but this is ripples throughout a family forever. Yeah. Yeah. She is so fantastic though. Let's talk about Brenda Blethyn because she was up against Frances McDormand in the Oscars. And of course, Frances McDormand won for Fargo, which we've discussed. And Frances McDormand, I feel like, 
she largely won for that tremendous scene when she's drinking the coffee when she first arrives at the murder and she talks him through. But Brenda Blethyn has a terrific monologue in this as well. And it's not one of her more emotionally raw. And it's actually the thing of all of it that I was laughing knowing it was coming. And it's when she's telling Claire Rushbrook, Roxanne, about birth control. And she just starts shouting out, you'd suit the sponge. <laughs> and then at another point, she says, I've got a Dutch cap upstairs. You could just run it under a tap. <laughs> and it's so fucking brilliant. It's so amazing, that scene. She's so terrific in it. I love her. One of my favourite Cynthia scenes is when she's very insistent that everyone has salad. And it just reminded me of so many parties, in inverted commas, at, yeah. at my family's house. I think Marianne Jean-Baptiste is absolutely astonishing yeah. as well because she is just understated mm. the whole time. Well, it wouldn't have worked if otherwise. They couldn't have both been that high amp, could they? Because Roxanne's obviously very high amp as well. Yeah. I love her voice, Marianne Jean-Baptiste. I love her voice so much. I find it like it's such a lovely voice. I don't know if it's because it's like you know, London, or, like, I just think it has, like, a real, like, warmness to it that I just enjoy very much. And she's the calming influence for Cynthia, so maybe it's partly that as well. So, like, she's calming Cynthia and also us. Yeah. We've got this. We're all right. I don't have massive expectations. Let's see how we go. Can I ask, Mickey, you pulled a face when I said that I was five years older than her and I still saw her as an old woman. Did you disagree with that statement? Uh, I do not disagree with your maths. Your maths is correct. I didn't see her as an old woman. I think she's... I know what you mean, though. But I did go, oh, gosh, she's younger than I am in this. And I don't think she looks it. And it is that generational thing. You know, like when we watch Jaws and all the parents of small children look like they're 78. (laughs) And it is that people just looked older then. And it's only 25 years ago. But... I think she's almost a teenager, like she's never grown up. She's had this trauma, whether that's trauma from a rape or whether that's trauma just because she had kids so young. She hasn't quite grown up in lots of ways. And I think she comes across as quite teenage, like still wants to be centre of attention, still wants all the love, you know, wants Morris to still be her little brother and like it used to be rather than an old woman but I tell, I do get what you mean as well I just don't fully agree it's funny isn't it because when I the scene between her and Morris like earlier on it's just the two of them I felt like there's definitely some like major familial trauma like going on here there's some there's something's gone on in your family that's like bad basically obviously their mum died when they were young but yeah it felt like way more tense to me than it did when I watched it when I was younger. She's quite childlike with Morris as well though, isn't she? Like she wants him to hug her even though he's quite uncomfortable. He looks after her even if it's financially, he gives her money for stuff. It's a quite symbiotic relationship of he needed her for so long and now she needs him and he, he doesn't know what to do with that. I found also like the way I felt about her was really... I think I found her like quite annoying when I watched it when I was younger and I felt way more sympathetic to her this time but then there's the bit young woman finds older woman annoying Jen no that would never happen (laughs) that would never ever happen but she is sort of a bit annoying she is quite annoying (laughs) and there's a bit like and I still felt when I watched the bit of the birthday you know when she when she just like obviously just like willfully just throws the grenade amongst them all and you're a bit like why have you done that you fucking idiot like 
what's that for? I, I couldn't, yeah, I, I couldn't feel a huge amount of sympathy for her after that. Oh, but she can't not. She can't yeah. not. It's like she's held it and held it and held it. And yeah, you're like, no, 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 this is a bad idea. But I felt sympathetic enough to her that I understood why she couldn't not do it. It wasn't to cause trouble, even though she must know it would cause trouble. It was because she could not not say anything. She's so proud of Hortense. She's so bored and tired by carrying this burden. But yeah, your other daughter's 21st birthday party isn't, isn't the best time to do it. Can we go back to Morris? Because Elizabeth Barrington gets almost a single but amazing line in this where she says, Oh, Morris, I wish I'd had a dad like you. You're lovely. Which is something I have to say I wholeheartedly agree with and I don't know how you feel about Morris. I did I did yeah. the heart sign when Hannah was talking about Timothy Spall, but yeah, definitely. We love all the Spalls. All the Spalls. Definitely. Yeah, no, he's he is clearly adorable. It's I found Monica very difficult obviously she has her own cross to bear and that's kind of the point isn't it everyone does i was glad that you know towards the end they looked like they were okay basically i think it's a really interesting choice to make him a photographer in this you know he sees stuff that other people don't see and all of that so it fits with the character but it also gives us that amazing set of photographs that's absolutely jam-packed with mike lee regulars yes including who doesn't want to watch a film where liz smith puts a cat on a chair takes a cat (laughs) on a chair to have a photograph taken but there's loads phil davis ruth sheen's in that alison stebman obviously endless amounts of mike lee regulars in those shots they are lovely they they bring some levity that's just full-on levity rather than dark humor which is what exists in a lot of the rest of it and it also serves to illuminate a little bit more about morris's character isn't it like Mm. his spiel when people get put in front of a camera and their face is just that frozen i don't know what to do with my features and he gets them i'd say he's got like an 85 percent hit rate of getting people to smile when they didn't think they wanted to yeah and morris exists to make everyone in his life happy that's what he does that's his character and so when he does his speech where he breaks down and says i'm just really unhappy it hits even harder when you've seen how much effort he puts into being the good guy and making mm. people literally smile, just making them smile. And you're under no obligation, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask about Mike Lee just in general before we end. I'm not going to say what's your favourite Mike Lee film because there is, like I say, there's quite a differentiation between what was made for TV, what was like originally started off as a play. But where would you say Secrets and Lies ranks i would say it's almost like you do with shakespeare you should separate them into drama and comedy and obviously abigail's party is the fucking peak of comedy and i also love nuts in may but i think this as a drama i think this is probably his best drama i don't know how many mike lee films i've seen i have seen abigail's party but i think i saw it a long 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 time ago and i think it was a little bit like, I think I was probably too young to watch it, so it didn't do that much for me. So I would say this is probably my favourite, to be honest. I think it's very near the top, isn't it, Secrets and Lies? Big fan of Abigail's Party. And also parties themed on Abigail's Party. Big fan of those as well. So, yeah, but Secrets and Lies, it's, there's so much there's so much in it that I think you can just watch it and watch it and watch it. You don't need the surprise, and obviously and the, the surprise is there, but it's out of the way really quickly, and then it's not ever touched upon. So, yeah, that Hortense is black, 
it's it's not a thing it's not an issue and that is so so refreshing and lovely no one finds it an issue she's welcome to the family with everyone yeah it's just mm. a surprise it's not like the the different directions they could have taken that in yeah i absolutely agree like it's it's just like oh right okay wasn't expecting that okay so secrets of lies rated or dated I hate to do this, but it's dated because of all that stenciling. Nah, it's clearly rated, <laughs> clearly rated. <laughs> God, Monica dresses exactly like my mum did in the 1990s. Exactly. <laughs> a nice sort of sort of waistcoat and sparkly trousers, well, which waistco- we used to call night trousers. Waistcoats will make an appearance in the next Rated or Dated as well. But yeah, my mum had the, the knitted crochet type top that Cynthia's got in various colours. I was like, oh, my mum definitely had a couple of those in white and a soft pink. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a top like that before, so uh, I loved it. Yeah, dated. No, not dated, sorry. Wrong. I mean, those are a Get bit out. dated, to be fair. Uh, rated, massively rated, yeah. Okay, so whose choice is it next week, or for next week? Next week, we are watching 1996's The Craft. Staying in 96, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Standard issue for all women.